Hi, Sacred Tension fans. My name is Matt Langston, and I play in a band called Eleventy Seven. I'm an artist, a producer, and I also host my own podcast right here on Rock Candy called Eleventy Life. We talk with the people behind your favorite songs and albums, from the writers to the producers and everyone in between. And we're not asking your favorite artists the same old boring questions like where did your band name come from and who's your favorite Friends character. We're asking questions like why did your marriage fail? Where does love come from? Is God real? It is a show about the importance of creativity and pursuing your passions. And we don't let guests leave until it gets a little bit uncomfortable. So check it out right here on Rock Candy and your favorite podcast app. This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the spiritual discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Bradford Long. Well, before we get started, just a couple of pieces of housekeeping. First, my Patreon is now live. You can go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. And for $5 a month, or even $1 a month, not even the price of a coffee at Starbucks, you will support this show. You will support the ongoing work that I am doing to get interesting conversations out there into the world. You will help me build a better studio space and you will help make this show sustainable. And you will get an additional patrons-only podcast called The House of Heretics in which Justin and I have very unedited conversations about everything from kinky sex to the Christian faith. I understand that many people can't afford to support the show. And I understand that. But for those of you who can, if you want to support creators you love, then please take the time to go to Patreon and pledge $5 a month. It means so much to me and it really goes an enormously long way because this show takes about 10 hours a week to record, edit, produce, booking shows, and I'm doing all of it and I already work full time. So if you are able to give, please, please do. It is so helpful and goes such a long way to making sure that this show continues. I also have a new website. The former website, sbradfordlong.com, will soon be defunct. And all of my work is being transferred to the new URL, stephenbradfordlong.com. And it's a much simpler website, much clearer layout. You can find all my work there and you can find ways to support me. All right. Well, today I am talking to Rob Larson. Rob Larson is a professor of economics at Tacoma Community College in Washington State and the author of Economics and Capitalism versus Freedom. He's written broadly, including for In These Times, Dollars and Cents, and Jacobin, and appears on alternative radio and other programs. In this conversation, we talk about 
about basic definitions of words that are often misused, primarily Marxism and socialism. So this conversation really starts with a basic rundown of these complex fields of study and coming up with, you know, basic working definitions of them. Hence the title of the show, What is Marxism? But of course, you know, the conversation expands far beyond that. We talk about the existential threat of capitalism, especially as it ties to climate change. We talk about intellectual integrity on the right and the left and what it means to be intellectually honest and to have intellectual integrity. We also talk about figures like Jordan Peterson and why they are so unbelievably powerful and significant in this day and age. It was a fantastic conversation. I really, really enjoyed this. We are veering kind of off the track of sacred tension into more economics and philosophy and and that kind of stuff away from religion in this conversation. But I think this is still important stuff and uh, still applies to all of us, regardless of whether we find it interesting or not. So with that, I am very excited to bring you my conversation with Rob Larson. All right. Well, so Rob Larson, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Yeah, my pleasure, man. Before we get started, if you could just tell us some about yourself, what you do and what your field of study is. Uh, yeah, right on. I'm an economics professor in a uh, Washington State uh, community college. And I've uh, been teaching uh, econ for about 13 years. Uh, it's a really fun gig. Uh, in my... Uh, research and writing work, I'm pretty interested in some of the uh, big economic uh, issues of our time, including what we're doing to the environment. Sure. Uh, my undergraduate, my undergrad degree was in biology, uh, so I've got a special interest there. Uh, and besides that, the broader working of the economic system and how much power uh, we tend to find in different forms uh, within the marketplace. So uh, wide enough to keep me pretty busy. Awesome. And of course, we got in touch with each other through our our mutual co-conspirator, Douglas Lane, who runs Zero Books, the, the publishing house and the YouTube channel and the podcast. And he's been on the show before and hopefully he will be coming back in November. Uh, and so he okay. he's the one who referred me to you. And so would you let's just go ahead and, and go right for the jugular. Would you call yourself a Marxist? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> That's easy. Thanks, okay. everybody. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Show's over. The music is by the Jelly Rocks. <laughs> this is so much easier than I thought. Yeah. Uh, to me, like, well, I'm very much a socialist, and I would say I'm radical for my part to the extent that I think we would benefit from a real break from our market-based system of organizing the economic system. But Marxism, to me, you know, it's a like a lot of social science bodies of thought. It's pretty broad, and there's a lot of range in there. And I'm more sympathetic to those sort of inter or you know uh, uh, pre World War One branches of Marxism back when Koch and Luxembourg were sort of dominant figures in it. Uh, I feel like there's I should I should stress like I don't see myself as a market as a Marxist, but I uh, feel like I owe the school an enormous amount. Uh, incredibly sharp people have been Marxist down the years, yes. and I've benefited hugely from their insights, and I rely on them constantly. So I should say, uh, I don't see myself as a Marxist, but I borrow very liberally from their uh, body of work. I think kind of the angle I come at it from, you know, like I said, my undergrad was in the sciences. Like there, you don't typically say that you belong to like a particular individual's body you know, uh, of work. 
mm -hmm. their school of thought. You know, we have all kinds of extremely prominent biologists these days and in recent history, but no one really says they're, you know, a Darwinist or whomever within the hard sciences. Yes. You take what good ideas they've got and you smush them with other people and you move on and throw the rest in the garbage. <laughs> and so with Marxism to me, it's a little too much of a, for all of its huge benefits, and I'm so grateful to Marxists down the years, I think there is a tendency to get sort of caught up in like, yes, but what do we think about this? I feel like it hurts sure. uh, the field and kind of the freewheeling thinking that you would need otherwise. I remember Chomsky somewhere uh, said something to the effect of his and himself as a Marxist. He said, I think his phrase was, I'm a derivative fellow traveler. Right. Like he, he's derived from it, but sort of just, just accompanying the tradition. I thought that was a very science-y way of looking at it. So that's sort of how I see it. You know, when I reached out to Doug Lane initially, I wanted to have someone to come on to kind of do a basic crash course in these definitions of these words that are just being thrown around all over the place, especially online and especially by the right. And this fear mongering all about, you know, neo-Marxist, postmodernist intersectionalists yes. and <laughs> not, <laughs> Nazi feminist, neo-Marxist, you know, yes. postmodernist and so on and so forth. Forth. I would just like to go down a list of words and and get a basic concise definition of them and how the far right and when I say the far right what I'm thinking of in particular are people like Jordan Peterson people like oh who's who's this marmy nasally guy I can't remember his name uh Ben, Sh ben Shapiro <laughs> yes how did I get them just from that description how, how so did you how did you know um hundred to one shot Dave Rubin, uh, you know, and, and those types of people, they, there's a lot of smearing and fear mongering around these words. And so let's just start with the word Marxism. What is Marxism and, and what do people often misunderstand or get wrong about Marxism? I know that's a huge question and that we could <laughs> probably spend, you know, three hours talking about it. <laughs> but, Indeed. but if you could compress that down some, what is Marxism and what what do people get wrong about it? Or what are the most important things about it that people get wrong? Yeah, well, I mean, to my not mind, uh, Marxism is the most prominent school of uh, full socialism where uh, there's an emphasis on certain uh, concepts and analytical tools developed by Karl Marx and his uh, fellow travelers. So uh, an analysis of capitalism as a historical system with specific social relations of power and various things flowing from that, such as... Uh, theories of why it has crises so frequently, the alienated aspect of labor under it. It's a really, like I said, it's a really broad school of thought. But to me, Marxism is that school of socialism that's most directly derived from Marx's work. And uh, again, the school since him that's uh, shaped it a lot. I should say, though, Marxism, kind of getting toward your, your bigger question there, the right and really the establishment in general uses any term that describes people to the left of a New Deal liberal, they use those terms interchangeably to mean Stalinist. <laughs> Right. I feel very confident in making that uh, summation there. Uh, if you look at how the word socialist, communist, Marxist get used, it's more or less by the right, you know, uh, it's more or less uniformly to mean someone who advocates to, to imply that people want a dictatorship with total government control over the economy and everything else. Within Marxism, there's a pretty big range. Some people consider themselves Marxists and they're basically European social Democrats or New Deal liberals. And that goes all the way through, you know, your standard Marxist Leninist types through your full-on, you know, still existing Stalinist, which really is 
a tiny but existing thing. So when Jordan Peterson uses these words, like that word, in, if you look at the way they use it and the way they tweet, and the way they write about it in their books, it's very much a smushed up yes. version of anything for which they have contempt. And let me say, there's a lot in Marxism that I have contempt for. So that would be fine, except for these buffoons. This is just a way of smearing anyone to the left of frigging Hillary Clinton. It's pretty embarrassing. Right. So basically what they're doing is they are collapsing this entire field and this entire tradition and world of study down into a single film of of meaning. Indeed. And you yeah. shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't do that. And because of how prone social analysis and the social sciences are to tribalism, it's a, a somewhat predictable thing. And I have a lot of left-wing friends and they want to call, you know, you know, establishment Republicans like Paul Ryan or Mitt Romney, they want to call them fascists. I'm like, well, you know, you shouldn't do that. They're arch-conservative, democracy-hating elitists and arch-capitalists, but they're not full-on fascists. And right. we have fascists now, so we need to be able to tell them apart. It's just very analytically poor. No scientist would get away with this, but this isn't the sciences it's the social sciences right <laughs> and it's a different for different story so anyway that's the stuff i feel like i would shove into marxism or the things that people should consider sure so basically marxism is much bigger and more complicated um maybe not everything in marxism is good or wonderful but it is a you know i i kind of see it as like psychoanalysis or or freudian psychoanalysis it's like mm. there's a lot of bullshit there but there's a lot there that later psychology has been built upon and is good and we shouldn't no discount doubt. it just because freud was a kinky crazy asshole <laughs> and <laughs> that's a good uh, i would say that's a good analogy really and it speaks to the same issues like psychology kind of straddles the line between social and hard science sometimes right but it, like that tendency to be well are you a freudian or a Jungian? like this is not a scientific posture like right. this is not a great way to figure out who's got what good idea or who's close to the truth but they're kind of something so yeah like in general i think people should be leery about taking someone whose ideas that they like for legit reasons and then saying i'm an ist of that person like that's not a great analytical posture i feel like anyway. sure so here's a question when the word marxist comes up People instantly go to Maoist China or to Soviet Russia and Stalinist Russia. And is that a correct connection that people instantly make? Is that a correct place to go in people's minds? Yeah, that's uh, that to me is a subtler question because the Soviet Union and the PRC have like uh, a lot, you know, they're big you know, societies and any even your simpler societies have a lot of detail and complexity to them. And so within Marxism, there is a big hot debate to this day about how much those states really owe to Marxist analysis and how much, you know, th that original set of thought shaped those institutions. And, and the Marxists would make the case that those countries were attacked by the developed imperial capitalist countries as soon as they had their revolutions, which is very accurate, and that that made them more paranoid and more militaristic and more, 
you know, once the revolutions were over, more authoritarian. That's a legitimate defense. On the other hand, to me, the bridge between these two things is uh, primarily the body of thought around Lenin. Mm. And Lenin, again, uh, like most Marxists, call themselves Marxist-Leninists, because yes. Lenin, of course, was the, le the leader, one of the leaders of the Russian Revolution and became the leader of the Soviet Union uh, in the aftermath of that. Uh, a lot of folks very much like his work and uh, think it's a positive extension of Marxism and the embodiment of socialism and stuff. Uh, I tend to you know, line up with that somewhat more obnoxiously contrarian school of socialists who view Lenin and the figures around him as being sort of an authoritarian strain within the broader socialist movement, which you know, socialism proper has got a lot of aspects to it, of course, as well. But the court idea of it has been considered to be uh, worker control of the means of production, you know, so workforce control over the economy, some sort of democratic organization for economic decisions to be subject to some level of popular control. And of course, there's a lot of different proposed ways mm. to make that happen. But if you look at Lenin himself, a number of folks whose work I think is relatively persuasive would say if you look at the work that Leninists most like to point out from his work, like uh, his books like The State and Revolution and the April Theses and uh, writings that he did uh, prior, you know, during the ferment of the early Ru Russian Revolution in the period prior to that. They're very much like oriented toward classical socialism. We're trying right. to help the workers get organized, overthrow this, the very bloodthirsty tyranny of the czar and the you know, other reactionary European power centers and put some form of worker organization into the seat of decision making. Once the revolution happens, it's all about movement of huge armies under Trotsky and militarily beating the West and the czarists and the white armies and all of this chaos that goes in any revolution, certainly the Russian revolution, which is mm. an especially complicated one. At the end of that, it's extremely authoritarian and Lenin is happy to dictate to all the city socialist parties and their Soviet worker panels and, and assemblies and tell them this will be the rules of the party. This is how decisions will be made. And they're all to the effect of giving the common turn that Lenin was in charge of all the authority, which I would say is a profoundly anti-socialist step. Authoritarianism means less democracy, more or right. less by definition, more or less. And that means less socialism, a classical socialist would probably say, and I would agree with that. So to me, like that's sort of the bridge. Mao and Lenin led specific authoritarian revolutions against authoritarian reactionary regimes that deserved to go. But I think largely because of the violence that those power centers resisted with and the involvement of America and the European powers, we made those revolutions all about violence and who could win the violence fight. Well, big surprise. Now these regimes, whatever they might have thought going in, in, the figures leading them, they come out incredibly violent and prone to dictatorship and all the horrible shit that comes with dictatorship, like crazy schemes to industrialize China with tiny furnaces in your backyard. And now we have tens of millions of people starving. Yes. These are the wages of dictatorship. And of course, to actually answer your damn question that I ran away from, uh, the tendency <laughs> among all these characters, yeah, is to say, oh, socialism, it's Russia and China and Venezuela, any poor third world country that had some revolution against our pro-West dictatorship, now it's an anti-West dictatorship. That's what socialism is. Well, not really. These countries wave the flag of socialism. They also wave the flag of democracy, right? Mm. Like the USSR. It's the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Yes. 
Well, if, and, you know, and the People's Republic of China, people hear that in the West and they correctly go, see, that's bullshit. They're not really republics. They're using that to sound better and to try to steal some of the moral prestige that correctly people attribute to a republic as opposed to a monarchy or something. I would just say that they're also waving the flag of socialism equally misleadingly. But I put some of that blame at the foot of figures like Lenin who kind of bridge that. So TLDR, it's complicated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, That's, I should have a shirt that says that. Yeah. TLDR, it's complicated. It, yeah, so we have these very simplistic narratives about these words and and ideologies. And, you know, people may still disagree with them, but at least disagree with them honestly with the actual history and the actual ideology in sight and the actual yeah. philosophy in sight. It's okay to disagree with something or it's okay to part ways with something. At least do so actually fucking knowing what you're doing and thinking and talking about. And that's yeah. what I so often get from mm -hmm. people like Jordan Peterson is I, I hear them talk and there's just what sound. I don't think it's rank dishonesty. I think they just <laughs> believe their own bullshit. You know, yeah. I, I, I think they believe their own simplified bullshit when the reality is that there's a lot more complexity here. So so here's another word that I would like you to define socialism. Yeah. Oh, that's an easy one. <laughs> uh, yeah. And this kind of connects to what you were just saying, too. Like one of the things that does drive me nuts is. And like you were saying, like figures like Peterson and others and really anyone on the right from Fox News down to Buckley, you know, yeah, is uh, I would be so happy if they would disagree with some intellectual honesty. If they want to say, OK, you socialists, you say the workers should control the economy. So all the workers should be organized. And then they send delegates to the bigger worker organization. So, you know. You organize by industry and send representatives to meet meetings for the sector. And you can recall that representative. The representative has no power. They're just there to represent your assemble, your organized workers with a manageable number of individuals. And then we debate decisions and move up or down based on that. Like the legitimate argument against this is that this is too much administration. It's too much meetings. It's too much deliberation, all this democracy and back and forth and panels and mm. recalling representatives and trying to argue and come up with a plan with something like a decent centralized economic process. Although I would say, I think you can imagine a democratic center, a legitimately partially <laughs> centralized democratic process there. there. You could argue against that by saying it's just too much of a mess. Workers aren't going to want to put in this time. It's going to be too inefficient, but they won't do that. They won't bring mm. up the legitimate objections that I can see being raised against the views I have. Like I'm honest enough to see that would be a vulnerability that people could raise. Instead, what they do is say, see, you're dirty Joseph Stalin, and because of you, Ukrainians starved. You caused that to happen. You know, yes. it's so it's so utterly dishonest. And so, discussing this among the big right wing intellectuals that I look at in my new book, yes. I just refer to this again and again. These people are intellectual opportunists. Yes, it's not. Here's what's wrong about your argument, and I figured it out. It's right for me to make this argument. It's what will make the other side discredited. And then just say that no matter how irrelevant uh, it is to the actual debate. So right. I think that kind of connects to this issue, too. So socialism as a, as a term is one of the broadest in the whole social sciences. I would say only liberalism itself is used to refer to more things, you know? Yes, I would liberal agree with that. US, Absolutely. Yeah, liberal in the U.S. means like a New Deal Democrat or something like Sanders or FDR. 
before that, it meant that we had market economies like libertarians will sometimes call themselves classical liberals yes. because they incorrectly believe that's what classical liberalism is. But that shows how broad that <laughs> term is. Socialism, like I said earlier, like the core idea historically, and I should say socialism does predate Marx by a fair amount of time, too. Yes. Uh, it's you, you, there's different aspects to it. Usually, it's a social philosophy centered on things including equality, uh, economic equality among people. But mainly, it's about control and power. Who has the power within the economy? Mm. And broadly speaking, socialism means worker control through whatever form, through whatever representatives, through however the process works. Ultimately, the workforce broadly is in charge of or at least has a role in shaping those economic economic decisions. Like right now, Jeff Bezos is deciding which North American cities get to have a future. Yes. Based on which ones get fulfillment centers and data centers and, of course, the coveted headquarters, which will never pay a dime in taxes for yeah. history. That shouldn't be even if he makes nice choices, which, you know, P.S. he doesn't. But even if he made nice choices, it shouldn't be in one or two powerful rich people's hands, even if they're nice, even if they're George Soros and Warren Buffett, like reputedly more generous hearted capitalists. If they have a stroke tomorrow or their kid dies and it changes their personality. Oh, shit. <laughs> you don't want to have kings anywhere. And that includes in the economy. And boy, do we have power people with that kind of power. In the yeah. Economy, so. Yeah. We have people who who are like mutated jokers who are who are controlling yeah. things. Yeah. Yeah. You're twitchy eyed Lex Luthor looking ruling exactly. class douchebag. Like exactly. So yeah, you know, it's big so, to a lot of people. Socialism means like European socialism, like a social Democrat, like a liberal around here, you know? Yeah. Then you'll have people, yeah, who are more you know, Marxist Leninist socialists who are more radical and have a dedicated body of uh, philosophy they've built up. And then you have folks who are more libertarian socialist and want to get rid of the giant corporations, but then don't want to hand it over to a Leninist state of some type. So mm. once again, like there's this crazy breadth to the idea. And what that should say to anybody is when people just go socialist Marxist, it just shows they're not thinking seriously about it. You're smushing together 30 different schools of thought. What do they have in common? Well, you don't care for them. That's what they have in common. Yeah. And especially when you start bringing in like multiculturalism or, interse or intersectionalism or God help us, philosophical postmodernism. These are all <laughs> totally different ideas and schools of thought that themselves are really broad. Yes. If you want to condemn them, that's fine. But when you smush them all together, it's just a red flag that you haven't bothered to read any of their shit, which should be the minimum standard for being a serious commentator on them. Yeah, know? exactly. So TLDR, it's complicated. It's yeah, more man. fucking complicated than people say it is. All right. Yeah, you know, and people, you know, my, sometimes my students don't like those kind of answers. And I tell them, well, you know what? If you ask a doctor, like, how does the brain work? He's not going to give you a one word answer. He's going to give you an answer with a bunch of sentences and some question marks. Yes, exactly. If people don't like that. That's fine. But if you can't you can't tolerate hearing a complicated answer. You need to reevaluate how much you want to look into things because sometimes shit is complicated, man. Yeah, you know, this This all is bringing to mind my theory that the love over the intellectual dark web right now, Peterson, Harris, Ben Shapiro, what's his nuts, Steve, uh, 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 <laughs> Dave Rubin, all of those guys, the, the absolute fawning over these people... I can only see that as like 
the telltale signs of the degradation of the American intellect. <laughs> like, like you wouldn't be into <laughs> Peterson if you actually read Jung. You wouldn't be into Peterson if you actually read this stuff, at least in my opinion. And the fact mm. that people find Peterson so thrilling is, in my mind, just just speaks to the point that people aren't well read. Yeah. And, and I should stress, like I've read a limited amount of Jordan Peterson. I've got my hands full reading stupid economists that <laughs> adding philosophers, adding philosophers to the bailiwick is, is a little bit past what I can put myself on. The hook. <laughs> I, I listened to his entire fucking audio book of 12 Rules wow. for Life for oh. for my interview with with Douglas Lane because Doug came on to talk about Jordan Peterson. So I read that whole book in preparation wow. and there were times when Jordan Peterson was narrating it and he would start crying during his own narration on the audio book. Oh, really? Yes. What? Yes. Yes, he did. Well, like about the horrible tragedy that there are people on the left and isn't it sad? Is he weeping about it? <laughs> no, it was it was something like by the way, dear listeners, if we've just totally lost you, yeah, sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. This might not be the episode for you, and I'll go back to talking to queers and Satanists next week. Yeah, we'll talk more about sad religion soon, I'm sure. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but yeah, no, it was, it was some section about how order, the beauty of order, and the symphony oh. of order. And wow. it was just what a like, stupid opinion. Oh, no, no, no scientist would say that anymore. We're very aware of how chaotic. Yeah. So many of our scientific subjects are that's the that's the out that's that's the view of an outsider naive is what yes. I like to say to his goofy face. Yes. And and you know the thing is he's a perfectly valid psychologist. He has done perfectly huh. good work. Like hmm. like early on, early on in his career, he did perfectly good work. I think it was in like drug addiction or alcohol addiction, alcoholism. <laughs> he did great work. Like he he's a decent scientist he's a good scientist within his field within a particular field and you know what i so often see what i see all the time is people leaning on the fallacy of their own authority and because they have credentials in one area and because they are because they are learned in one area then people will take them seriously in other areas and so you know peterson is a you know being a psychologist that is a perfectly valid field and peterson is a decent psychologist as far as i know i might be totally full of bullshit <laughs> right here so if listeners know otherwise then please email me and, and correct me but then but then there are videos of him in his classroom saying that an ancient mythical image from ancient china is actually an image of the double dna helix oh my god and saying that they add that that's actually what that is but because he's jordan peterson people take that seriously and so there wow. is this there's there is this reliance on the fallacy of his own authority because he seems like he knows what he's talking about in one field and clearly he knows what he's going to talk about in other fields. And I try to point this out every time I see it and I can't count the number of times that I've seen it where even people I respect are they they just wander blindly into something that they don't understand. Yeah, that's interesting. And like I'm not in principle against people going outside their no, field. No, not what at all. You have to do but do it well. To do is show that you have earned the right to run your mouth in another field by showing that you have familiarized yourself with the different views in the body of literature and in whatever debate is going on in that field. Like you can show a good faith, legitimate 
you know, uh, uh, you know, a, des- a deserved uh, right to comment on something. Roll in and go like, well, I don't know how medicine works. <laughs> I think we should all just, you know, get more sun and diseases would go away. Well, you obviously didn't begin to look into it, did you? You imbecile. <laughs> the social sciences, though, because in general, the social sciences are a lot floppier and less, uh, you know, we have less ability to experiment for better or worse. I'm not saying we necessarily right. should. Because of the nature of the field, we can't experiment and stuff. So the whole tendency is for us to keep debating the same fucking questions for literally down the centuries in the social sciences. Whereas in the hard sciences, gradually big questions are settled and then we move on to details or to new areas. Like the way the sciences progress or don't progress, I think says a lot. Peterson, yeah, I know less about individually. What I know about him is I've read, which I will say are a few disparaging reviews. I have not read his own work, but I've seen the diagrams he puts in his book. (laughs) That is, uh, I don't know. I don't throw this around lightly because there's real competition for this, but I would say that that is one of the stupidest things I've ever viewed. And I've viewed some dumb shit. Like I've, I've worked in areas where you see stupid things. That's like, oh my God, I would throw a student out of my office for trying to pass that shit off his work. And this guy's like this amazing figure with these goofy made up based on nothing diagrams like making a diagram is supposed to represent like a lot of hard work and you're just making up crap with unicorns on it and stuff so that's frustrating uh the broader piece of it though yeah it's just like i was saying showing that you've read the different sides so one thing i feel like people who do good critical writing do uh, like Nathan Robinson at Current Affairs. Oh, uh, he's he, great. He wrote that big disparaging article about. I Peterson, would, I is, would love to have him on this show, but oh, he's a, he's a hilarious, really sweet dude. Yeah, yeah he's uh, great. He, like that's like that's great, and you could tell those are serious because he's he bleeds for those things. Like he read he reads Dinesh D'Souza's books, yes, he which does. are far more of a waste of time than reading Jordan Peterson. <laughs> that's just nothing. There's just nothing there except saying shit that sounds nice if you're on the far right. He'll read that stuff. So when I wrote my books, uh, like you know my book Capitalism versus Freedom that I have out now, that was all based on let's go to the right wing's economic books. Like pick up what they say are the classics, you know, like you know, The Road to Serfdom, Frederick Hayek's book, or yes. Milton Friedman's book, uh, The Road, uh, Capitalism and Freedom. These guys advised Reagan and Thatcher. They're still very respected on the right. You might think the books are kind of dated, but if you go to the Breitbart bookstore and don't do that, but if you do, if you get lost or if you get a head injury and you go there – You'll discover those books. Are All of my listeners are going to go there now. I oh, I'm sure they're going to stand. <laughs> Listening to me is the equivalent of having a head injury. <laughs> <laughs> Why pay a hospital bill? Use a podcast. Exactly. So, yeah, like if you, those are the books that they say, and you know they'll hand you those books if you're on the left or you're a, a college student. Your business school friends will hand those things to you, and they're supposed to be these amazing books. They're going to set you straight and make you stop being a leftist to make you love Ronald Reagan and so forth. If you read them, they're fucking dog shit. Like they're so bad. Like there's yeah. so little there. Like these books, I have to say, like right wing books, a lot of the time they're not arguments and there's no evidence. It's just lists of demands. Like, of course, you should know this. And let's be clear that this right wing thing I think is true. Like uh, Capitalism and Freedom, the whole book has less than 20 footnotes. 
And half of them are footnotes to uh, like articles that Friedman wrote somewhere. Like there's nothing <laughs> really to substantiate it. Now, if you read Hayek's book or Friedman's kind of other really popular book, the one he wrote with his wife, Frida Chews, yeah. there it's a little less like just pitifully unsighted. And they have at least some references to research that's favorable to what they say. So anyway, when I wrote this book, like I went through their books and I highlighted them and I know what their arguments are. I've read their books. And plus, I mean, I'm an economist. I read the Wall Street journal every day yes. and that's you know the great journalism anyone who has access to it through their school because normally it has a paywall you know it's for investors and executives to read so you can't just read it for free all of it but if you can read it i recommend it it's a great paper but the editorial page is basically fox news with ap english like you know it's owned <laughs> yes. by the same it's it's owned by the same right-wing australian billionaire douchebag so it makes sense that it would be similar but the point is like i am very i can say i would say at least that i'm very conversant with what the right-wing's ideas are and i know how they view socialism and marxism i know how they view the market i know how they view politics it's pathetically wrong but I can say that because I did the horrible work of suffering through that stuff. And Robinson does that and lots of other, you know, uh, really thoughtful, great critics on the left and, you know, elsewhere uh, do that sort of stuff. But on the right, there's this long tradition of being far too smart to ever even read a leftist essay, let alone a yeah. couple of books and really get your hands on it, which you would think you should do if your whole career is going to be built on bashing all these people and saying feminazi, which is arguably the stupidest sound that can escape someone's lips. Like you should at least have good chops on this. These guys don't. And you can tell when you read their shit, they argue against positions no one has. Yeah, exactly. They smush together exactly. all these bodies of thought. Like it's immediately obvious that these guys have done none of their due diligence and homework. But of course, if you're, you know, some some kid trying to understand why you can't get a date because you're obnoxious and you listen to Jordan Peterson on YouTube, like, oh, feminism makes me not get a date. Little of that goes a long way. <laughs> yes. So basically what we're what we're talking about here is intellectual integrity and mm. the reality that there is not much into there is is intellectual integrity in certain individuals on the right. I just wish that there was a bit more. There is an epidemic of a lack of intellectual integrity all over the yeah. internet, all over the world. Yeah. It is epidemic. Yeah. It's like a fucking zombie apocalypse. And so basically what you're laying out here is what it takes to have intellectual honesty. It is okay to disagree. Just do so knowing what you're talking about. And that is so often what I don't see. That is the failure that I see again and again and again on the right. It's yeah, more on, I, I, see it. It, I see it more on the right yeah. than I do on the left, of course. You know, I maybe that's just me being biased and and having an in-group bias, but but just being honest about that. Yeah, I've well, yeah, that makes sense. I've definitely encountered hilarious levels of dishonesty on the left too. But again, it's all about yeah, it's on an individual level. You yeah. can't say everyone on this side is full of shit. Like there are right wing people who really want to understand. Like that exists. It's just rare. Like it's just not common. And certainly all the figures who are big time and are prominent, whether they're intellectuals or Fox News talking head buffoons, like one thing they have in common is clearly never having cracked any book that didn't agree with what they already know to be true with their right wing uh, 
uh, worldview. So that's a big issue. But I think that's exactly right. That intellectual integrity, like, again, that's what I end up concluding about Friedman and Hayek and others. Like, they're so able to see the power of governments. You know, they can make you pay taxes and they can make things illegal and they can regulate our nice marketplace. They can do all this stuff. And they're correct. Like, the state is the biggest power center in our society. But then as soon as we turn to the marketplace, these geniuses are completely out to lunch and it's the market it's competitive and Friedman will say oh well there's you know there's monopoly sometimes it's a big problem should we regulate it I don't think we should just let it be unregulated monopoly like Rockefeller or something right and Hayek calls concentration a Marxist dogma like he implies Wow. Just amazing. These guys were writing like after the 19th century. These guys wrote, you know, in the post-war era, you know, and Hayek you know, a little before that as well. But it's like, well, in the era of big business, big industry, corporate capitalism. And these guys say, well, markets are mostly competitive. And, you know, if there's a monopoly, it's the government's fault. I shake my damn head reading that because it's amazing to me. Like that's intellectual opportunism. Like you're just yes. doing the easy thing that will make people who agree with you go, oh, okay, wow, those dumb leftists. <laughs> I don't think realize how right we are. Like that's like, don't you want, like, don't you want to have intellectual responsibility? Don't you want to read the other side so you can know exactly yes. what's wrong with them and where their stupid Achilles heels are? Like, I just don't understand how late, like so much laziness yes. in the social sciences and in social commentary. And certainly the platforms have made it worse. Like Twitter just invites you to just go, oh, look, let's be clear about what a bunch of fascists the left is. Like, it, it, it doesn't allow anything more sophisticated than that. Yeah. So that's worsened it slightly. But this goes all the way back. I mean, people just have so little willingness to really engage with the other side. But once you do it, like, that's empowering, man. Now you know. Like, now, see, now because I sweated through all those terrible right-wing economics books. That was, that sucked. Like it took months out of my life, my limited human life to do that. But now I can look a right-wing idiot in the eye and know and say exactly where they're wrong and know I'm right because I read their shit. Like that's people, I don't understand why people don't want that, you know? Yeah, I, I totally agree. <laughs> well, and, and you know, one of the things that I tell people all the time, because I, I've gotten in trouble for talking to and reading people who I strongly disagree with. You know, people have sure. have dogpiled me on Twitter before. I, you know, yeah. I've been crucified on Twitter for, you know, being willing to engage with stuff that I do think is pretty disgusting. And and yeah. the thing that I always tell them is knowledge will never work against us. If I believe this idea is wrong, you know, if I think this idea is wrong, I have to understand it. I have to I have to know why people believe what they believe. And I have to understand those motivations. And and you're an idiot if you don't think that won't <laughs> aid us in this fight for more justice and freedom and liberty and so on and equality and all that. We have to understand why people do what they do. Anyway, well, we can I can rant about yeah. people like Jordan Peterson for hours and hours and really bore my audience. So, OK, um, so we are recording this on the 18th of October. So last week, uh, last week, the IPCC, for people who don't know what that is, the inter, uh, the, 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 uh, the intergovernmental intergovernmental panel on climate change. Thank you. Mm. <laughs> uh, release from the UN released their 
gargantuan statement on climate change and it's fucked me up really badly like it's it's devastated me and you know like i've i haven't been sleeping well because it's just devastated me i won't go into all the details of it listeners probably already know about it uh but basically according to the ipcc we have 12 years to to get our shit together uh and mobilize a world war ii level effort of change and cooperation with nations and industry to turn this thing around so you have done some some work on climate and capitalism and i i want to kind of broaden the focus now to why should we be worried about the current state of affairs why is the current state of capitalism the underlying system the structure that we live in right now why is that how is that connected to the existential threat of climate change and you know the very real existential threat of climate change but then also there's the more amorphous existential threat of of a loss of meaning and i'm wondering if if you could talk about that some yeah for sure so yeah the ipcc of course folks may know that's the un affiliated body of global uh, earth scientists who are trying to understand what's going on with our climate system these days. Uh, yeah, that new report has definitely slapped a lot of people in the face. It's been rough. Uh, if you keep up with this kind of literature, you kind of know that report's been a long time coming. Like a lot of the most alarming stuff in that report, you know, the science is a gradual body. We put together papers and gradually realize what's going on from that. These things have been emerging gradually. Uh, one thing people need to know as for like why this is kind of a surprising new document, people, idiots, again, to go back to the idiots, if I can, yes. it's on the right. Uh, so like, oh, IPCC, it, they say climate's an issue. That's a myth. That's a hoax. Just repeating what I hear on right wing radio. Uh, of course, no one. When I, the first thing I say to everybody, including people who are close to me personally, who say shit like this is, oh, yeah, well, what uh, what have you what scientific papers have you read about this? And then they go, uh, and I go, OK, thank you. They, <laughs> that includes people who recognize that it's an issue, like people who want to just talk about it have never read. You're lucky if they've read an IPCC report executive summary. You're lucky if they've read like the 12 page right. introductory summary part. And certainly, like any of the big research articles, let alone the big summary, you know, meta studies that really give you a sense of what the field is gradually learning. No one's got any damn familiarity with that at all. Right. So that's annoying. Uh, As for the issue itself, like, yeah, like now it's looking like we're within a few decades of really, really having this get away from us and having it affect our lives right now. And again, it's happening now, like many Earth scientists have been pointing out. Yeah, it's not in the future. I'm on the East Coast here. I'm in the Southeast and North Carolina. Carolina has just been pummeled. And then, you know, what we've been going through is nothing compared to what, you know, further south, South Carolina, Georgia, Florida have been going through. Yeah. So and this is a direct result of of climate change. Yeah, we should say like that's part of the scientific consensus. You know, people don't know this because they don't keep up with it. They read the sources that they already like and then get vague ideas from that. Where the president was on 60 Minutes this week saying there's scientists that both sides of this thing. Not really. Not really. Like there's a tiny, like literally a single digit number of people who are mostly supported by groups that get their money from the fossil fuel industry. Yeah, and the same of them people. Have been, the yeah. same people who. Sorry to interrupt, but the same people who helped uh, the tobacco company. Yeah, you know, <laughs> like the tobacco Absolutely, companies. Yeah. It's the this same is, I mean, fucking story. people. 
Yeah. Yeah. It was the same much, people. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Much higher stakes, but like a really similar story. Like, and I, I don't want it to have a similar ending. So what happened with cigarettes is they were able to drag it out and deny it. Eventually they couldn't deny it anymore. And now everyone agrees cigarettes cause cancer and yeah, people are trying not to smoke or they're vaping instead or whatever. But by then it was too late and we lost a generation of people having lung and throat and mouth cancer. Yeah. That can't happen this time. Because no. if these guys drag it out long enough, which they have totally been succeeding at so far, then our civilization just goes over a cliff. And so what you're saying about the weather, you know, again, people say, well, that's not proven. The scientists are more and more confident about connecting our crazy, huge hurricanes and all this flooding and all these all these other weather anomalies we're having toward the disruptions that have been predicted, you know, more cautiously, but then more and more confidently as t- research piles up by the scientists. And it's true out here, too, like the West Coast, you know. The area from the Bay Area up to Vancouver has been suggested in the past mm. in you know very reputable places like the New York Times. It's been suggested as a place that's expected to be relatively well positioned to ride out the early parts, at least, of climate change compared to the East Coast. Yeah, where you're flood prone and yes. storm prone and so on. But what's been happening out here is you know we have these aspects that sneak up on us. And because we keep having droughts here, obviously in California and the Southwest, but even up here in the Northwest, especially uh, past the Cascade Mountains where they don't get the rain that we're famous for having around here. And even out here in the summer when it's pretty dry, actually, we get these horrible forest fires. And if the winds do something somewhat uncharacteristic, you know, typically our wind blows in from the ocean, you know, you have these onshore winds. If it stops at all, it blows this horrible haze from these gigantic thousand and thousand acre forest fires on us. And so this past summer, there were many days it was hot outside. I'd like to have my windows open at my house, but I got to close them. I got to keep my beautiful little wonderful cat inside because you can't go outside really it's bad for your lungs to be outside very long or certainly to do any work or exercise outside because it's and turned so into we have Mordor. These storms yeah and we have this incredible heat uh that is rising in the summer over time you know and uh and now these these this horrible smog scientists are referring to like wow we're spending more and more in time sitting in discomfort already yeah from this stuff and we're just seeing the beginnings of what we're you know looking into in the future with that IPCC report. So that's interesting. So that's kind of the scope of this. And of course, a lot of folks probably among your listeners will be familiar with some of the basics of this issue and how big the stakes are. So to get to what your question was, uh, and how does this connect to capitalism? Well, a lot of folks would like it if we could use regulation to deal with this. And there are some legitimate proposals that would help a lot. You know, Just simple investment by government in renewable energy. Yes. which other countries like Germany are doing. Germany gets more than half of its electricity from renewables, not natural gas, renewables. That's incredible. I didn't know we that. We do that. We're as good as those dumb Germans are, but it's just out of the question here. How dare you, you totalitarian Marxist, socialist, communist, feminist? How dare you say that? <laughs> but within like achievable policy, there's cap and trade, you know, cap and trade, government policy. The EU does this. So polluters and power companies that emit climate gases like methane and carbon dioxide, they're given licenses or sold licenses that give them the right to emit. And if they're more pollution efficient, they're left, they have extra permits left over that they can sell for new revenue. And if they're inefficient, they have to buy them. So they're penalized. And the idea is this brings market incentives Mm. into line with climate. It gives, you know, the Koch brothers an incentive to pollute less when they make electricity because then they'll save money. Well, that would be a great, like at least step, like a modest, but potentially significant step toward dealing with this. Well, the closest we came was in 2010 when we had 
President Obama and at that time a fully Democratic Congress in the House and Senate. Yes. And it died in the Senate at the hands of conservative Democrats. Obviously, the Republicans all united against it, as they still do. But you had enough conservative Democrats who who, who killed the ACESA, the American Clean Energy and Security Act, which would have mm. done a cap and trade and some other stuff. That's the high watermark. And since then, it's Republican douchebags just putting their fingers in their ears as Florida gets punched in the face again and again by bigger and bigger hurricanes and all around the region, too. And I should say, I have family in North Carolina who were very important to me, and it's pretty horrible watching these huge storms go barreling like down a gun barrel toward the east coast and the forest fires out here and the melting arctic and the shifting weather patterns the third world is broadly expected to get the worst of it and they're already the poorest mostly because of european actions yeah they're gonna be pretty twisted so yeah yeah, my point would be like those conservative democrats killed that bill because they got heavy opposition from the fossil fuel industry and china basically follows america's lead on climate since we have refused to do anything at all they have the, the tiny steps they do are bigger than ours. Yeah. So like that industry's power, like it's an almost existential threat, climate change, to the business model of the oil and gas industry. Even with their fracking and their natural gas use, that it, industry emits a lot more uh, greenhouse gases than they feel like emitting. It's constantly hinted at in the tiny amounts of data that we get about it that are allowed to be released. That those facilities, even though they produce natural gas, which releases less greenhouse gases than burning coal uh, or even oil, because the facilities are so leaky, they release more methane than we realize. And methane's a way worse greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide is. So it's the power of that industry that is primarily what has kept us from addressing what the scientists are pulling their hair out about. And what that speaks to is it's our economic system, you know, the power of an industry to shape our destiny and decide if we're going to be able to deal with these existential threats. Uh, Like at one point in my book, uh, in chapter four, it's all about what's happening with climate and the broader environment and what we expect over basically the rest of the century. And uh, at one point, I just uh, quote uh, Rex Tillerson, you know, who now, of course, is synonymous with the Hall of Mirrors clown car that is the Trump administration. (laughs) But when I wrote it, he was Exxon CEO of many years, of course. And, uh, you know, this is from memory. The quote is in the book. Uh, He said something like, you know, it's climate change. If it's real, it's an engineering problem. You know, we we created this with our human ingenuity. And so we'll fix it with our human ingenuity. So he said, like, we're just going to do this and we'll deal with it as much as we can later. And I just make this point in the book. I say, what is power? If your power allows you to commit humanity to a course of action that all the people looking at the issue seriously think will doom us, that is fucking power. Yes. And how can we call ourselves free when fat-faced, money-loving, future-crushing douchebags like that decide what's going to happen to us? This is not freedom. And so I make that connection in the book to the you know, yes, uh, absolutely. broader issues of freedom. Like that's got real implications for us in the future. And people should just remember that quote as we go further and further down this road. Tillerson's, well, he's like an adult compared to Trump. Like he's a good Republican because he's less crazy and prone to going off the rails. He's still a person who's dooming our grandkids, you know, like that's any scientist agrees with that. It's not a crazy statement to make. So I don't know. I feel like there's a pretty tight issue there. And I'm not saying that we can't fix our environmental problems until we get rid of capitalism. If we wait that long, yeah, we'll be screwed. If we wait that we long, should, we're yeah. fucked. So exactly, but we should realize they're tightly connected. That's all. Yeah. So so basically, what I'm hearing is we are on this you know death spiral right now, and it isn't it isn't inevitable. You know, I've been horribly pessimistic for the past week and just been incredibly depressed. And actually, today is kind of the first day that I'm 
feeling normal and like myself and kind of hopeful. So the death spiral is not inevitable, but we are very close to this, you know, inches away from this death spiral because people like Rex Tillerson. Okay, so connecting the the workers owning the means of production, if that were the case, then individuals like Rex Tillerson wouldn't be able to just drive us into the abyss. And that is the implications of capitalism. That that's what and, and that's what socialism is is trying to accomplish is to kind of get the steering wheel out of the hands of these few individuals who are made mad and psychopathic by the level of power they have and taking it out of their hands if 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 the workers did control the means of production in some way then individuals like rex tillerson wouldn't be able to drive us off the cliff in the way that he is and has am i is what i'm saying making sense that's that's the connection that i'm making Mm. Yeah, is, is that I, is that right? Am I connecting the dots right? I well, obviously, yeah. I, obviously, my view is uh, I think there's yeah a lot of what's right in there. You know, okay. basically in the book, I make the argument that as long as we have capitalism and your company can become huge and control whole industries a lot of the time, or you know have one or two gigantic competitors, people don't realize how much power that is. You know, and so if you if you look at our society, what happens in it is mostly dictated by the chamber of commerce. Yeah, because you got to realize, like, yeah, it's not just these individuals, of course. Like he, Tillerson's important because he was one of the figures running along with the board. You know, yeah, uh, a gigantic American corporation that has a huge role in this particular issue, climate change. But there's plenty of awful power mongering dicks like that, and you know, they, we have the Chamber of Commerce. Unlike the workers, businesses are allowed to be organized. You know, workers get organized. That's trade unions. Those are bad. Those are you know powerful and violent. Wonderful corporations organize themselves into the National Association of Manufacturers, America's Health Insurance Plans, the Internet Association, like every giant American industry and around the world, they get to be organized. Yeah. And they pool money for lobbying and for you know running ads to support some side of an issue that they want. So they get organized and the amount of money and power that they can throw in things when they're organized like that, people need to realize like that's how you move the world and change policies by having power on that kind of level. Yeah. You know, I don't I'm not a Leninist, so I don't think that the state should have that power and use it to help the proletariat. I think the workers in these industries need to be organized like the capitalists like to be yes. and run the industries themselves and then figure out a way to federate. And with today's technology, I feel like coordinating would be relatively easy. But even if there's a cost there, the benefit is we do have some examples of how entities behave when they're worker run. Even, I mean, some of them are on little petty local co-op levels, but you have bigger even industrial entities like Mondragon in Spain that have uh, mm. like real scale, they behave differently yes. from capitalist enterprises when they have a recession or a downturn in the industry generally. In capitalism, it's lay off the workforce. How quickly can we shed workers? Yeah. And of course, then they lose their purchasing power and cut back on spending, which makes the recession worse because capitalists are irrational. Uh, in cooperatively run or worker run entities, what we have often seen, at least on the limited record that we have of it, is that workers prefer to like share a sacrifice rather than lop off 10 percent and completely screw that 
fraction mm. often they're willing to like at least to a point shoulder a shared sacrifice and then past a point that becomes impossible of course but that's completely different from capitalism and again we have limited knowledge on this but to the extent that we can look at examples when these firms are confronted with like oh we're poisoning this lake or we're really wrecking the environment or you know have playing a role in global changes like we're looking at they're at least willing to consider changing their policies investing in different tech or whatever it would mean whereas with capitalism it's unless people organize to the point that they can out maneuver our chamber of commerce and get the government to make us change course we don't change course we're trying to make money here wall street wants to see us increase our profit this quarter and if they don't our stock will dive and our shareholders will try to push us out or change who's on the board. Like yeah. it's a social system. Tillerson's powerful, but he's within a capitalist system. If he had woken up one day, if he got hit on the head and woke up the next day and said, I'm going to work with this company is going to take its insane profit and invest it in wind and solar instead, or the like, his board would vote him out. He'll be thrown out. He'll yeah. be replaced by whatever douchebag lieutenant he has who's been gunning for the job, and he'll prosecute it within the you know, realm of the rules of capitalism. So that's the connection of the system. Like, no, we don't have to change the system before we fight these things. We dare not wait that long. Yeah. But we need to realize, too, if we just do it through little reforms, the business is organized. They'll fight us. They'll water it down. They'll wait until the public isn't interested anymore, and they'll destroy it later. That's what happened with net neutrality, you know? Yes. So they're all, they, as long as they have that power, They'll be waiting for their chance to get deregulated, to cut their taxes, to take the New Deal apart, which has mostly happened now, except for you know, a couple of nice pieces that are left. So that's the thing to me is like these entities have so much power and their legal, institutional and you know, market based systematic drive all force them to completely <laughs> disregard any value for preserving resources for the future or for putting the brakes on the abuse we're heaping on the system, according to the scientists. They can't afford to take that into consideration. They'll be out-competed by Chevron or just you know, have their board voted out. So that, to me, is the connection. As long as we have this system, even if we get important near-term victories, like which we really need for climate. Like we need a Democrat to win the election in two years who will give a fuck about climate. And so far, none of them are willing to even pretend they do. Yeah. So there's plenty of work to do in the near term. But as long as we have the system, they'll always be waiting for their chance to tear it back down. Yeah. And that, to me, is what really shows why capitalism is so criminally culpable for the climate issue. It's a systematic framework that these powerful jerks make their decisions in. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, so for the last question here, and this is another question that we could spend three hours talking about. But for for those of us who are feeling kind of depressed and desperate, what would you advise we do? Oh, yeah. Well, that's, well here I can actually help. Yeah. Uh, ironically, I'm not a psychologist, but I bet I can give better advice about it than a real one like Peterson. Uh, to, to me, <laughs> I bet you could. <laughs> yeah, to, to me, like, you, you, know, you just want to look at what's going on. Like, yeah, like a lot of Americans are depressed in general. and certainly on the left these days. What with, you know, pre, you know the child king and all yeah. of our problems and what the scientists are telling us is around the corner. Yeah, it's would be weird if you didn't have some depression response, you know, like it would yes. be odd. Uh, that said, I think there are some things like for one thing, we Americans are just on the most basic level. Americans are the most isolated people, especially for the developed world. Like everyone 
is alone in their apartment watching TV or online or playing video games. Maybe your family's around, you know, or your, you know, your your spouse or boyfriend or girlfriend. But we're so isolated, we don't socially participate. Yeah. Uh, so I would say the things that have helped me certainly, and I've talked to a lot of other people who say similar things. The first thing is to be be in touch with people who are somewhat like minded. Yes. And really, the way you do that though is by finding out who's actually fighting this shit in your town and get up or find the time around your dumb work schedule, which can be a limitation. I understand that. But get involved in it in some way. Like the periods of my life when I've been the most depressed and the most bummed out in my adult life, I look back, there are periods when I was like alone and I was, you know, going through probation to be to be tenured or right after I moved for a new job or something like that. Yeah. Humans are social. Even people who are introverted like need people. The the most severe punishment we give in civilization short of the death penalty itself is freaking solitary confinement. Yes. Like that's the worst punishment we made out is to put walls up between you and all people for 23 hours a day or more. Like that's how you break human beings, you know, that's how you ruin them. And so we are willfully putting ourselves in solitary confinement. Yeah, we kind of do it ourselves because yeah. we've got, you know, we have internet and comfortable apartments. A lot of us can afford that. And we're somewhat satisfied with our products and the streaming internet and we watch things on netflix and sit around and get fat and lonely and wonder why we're unhappy well i've got an idea you haven't inter you haven't socialized with anyone outside of work in six months you jerk go out find some activists in your town <laughs> i bet there are some on some issue that is like important yes just doing that like to me like so having that social connection is one thing and of course people have family and friends i'm not saying that no one has friends or anything but to me the real thing besides that social connection is participating in something that's fighting it even when you lose battles if you're doing activism what you tend not to be is totally depressed there's that's other true. problems like you can get overwhelmed and burned out and you got to watch out for those too yes but this depression and like this hopelessness like the people who i know are most hopeless are the ones who do the least activism and sure you do activism you know then you're really going to see just how entrenched and powerful the opposing side is but also like you're working with people and you have a frame of reference and people who, who will recognize the basic issues you're concerned about. Like that to me is the key to doing better and managing, you know, the emotional problems that we tend to get with our social system. Go out, make some friends fighting this shit. You will be surprised how much endorphins are in your system and how much better you feel. At least that was my experience. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I think you're right on the money with that. All right. Well, before we close, what are three books on this topic or on any topic that, that you found helpful or inspiring that you'd like to share with my audience? Oh, right on. Uh, well, <laughs> sorry, my cat's jumping in here. Oh, that's okay. She's got she's got her own three books. <laughs> this this um, podcast has uh, yeah. features lots of cats. Uh, you have house cats, yes, in the in the podcast. <laughs> That's a good choice. Well, I'd say, well, obviously, I got to recommend my book. <laughs> Absolutely, which I recommend, which I wrote to address a lot of these specific capitalism issues, versus you know? freedom. I'm in the middle of it right now. Capitalism for, oh, yeah. versus freedom. It's very That's well written. Great. Yeah. Very Thank good. You. Published by Zero Books. And yes. Zero Books is a wonderful publisher and run by Doug Lane, who I've mentioned throughout this show. Just check all of that out. It's very good. Definitely. And uh, for two other books, this might be a little more challenging for me. I've been up against a big manuscript deadline for another book. <laughs> That's okay. kind of kept me away from, I have a huge book pile of books I'm desperately wanting to get to. I'm pretty sure one that I would be recommending, uh, I will be once I've had time to read it, is um, the book, uh, No Shortcuts. Um, is it McAlevey, I think is her name? That's from memory. You folks can Google that. The book, No, Short no Shortcuts. It's about labor organizing. 
and uh, what we need to do or what we can do to turn around the decline and really the total loss of our U.S. labor movement, which would help us in so many ways. Like that brings people together, lets them hear some views outside of Fox and CNN and their capitalist consensus. uh, And it puts some countervailing power in worker hands to have something to oppose the power of the corporate world and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and all the other industry organizations. Because, again, that side is very organized and very proud of it. So that's one thing that jumps to mind. Um, see, another book, I mean, I have a couple, actually, that I would think of. I think, you know, uh, kind of getting toward what we were talking about earlier about being intellectually responsible. Like, you should read some books, whatever aspect of the world your listeners are interested in or whatever their issues are. You should read a book by the other side yes. and see how dumb it is and see what insights they've got that you can't answer and what, it is that uh, if you've got errors or you know weak points or blind spots in your thinking, that's how you're going to see it, you know. Uh, but in the meantime, you know, uh, I think a, a book that can help summarize that, you know, my book quotes those guys at length, like you know, yes. a couple paragraphs at a time. Let them make their case. Everyone on the right says, "Well, what does the left say?" Well, they say this and this. Well, no, you're summarizing it in an uncharitable <laughs> way, aren't you? Like David Brooks did that a while ago, and everyone roasted him alive for it on Twitter, justifiably. <laughs> David Brooks like, needs well, to be let's, roasted let's let, regularly. Let's them, yeah, <laughs> that's it's an easy sport. <laughs> it is. So let's yes. See what they say. <laughs> let's hear. Let's hear what I say that they say. So my book actually tries to let them have a paragraph or two to make their case, and believe me, it doesn't help them. But it makes it makes you more knowledgeable because now you've really heard the other side. So another book that kind of is in that spirit is a uh, Corey Robbins book, um, uh, The Reactionary Mind, which I am told has a brand new edition out. Mm. That, you know, is updated through the Trump era and so on. Mm. Uh, that's great, too. That book is, uh, you know, it's more political science based, I guess you could say. And I thought I knew something about the conservative tradition. Jeez Louise. Uh, Corey Robin is legitimately well regarded as uh, as a, uh, uh, a, a one of the most eminent left wing voices on the right. Mm. And its views, and it's it's good too. He talks about why it is the right has so few real intellectuals anymore when they used to have, you know, Friedman and William F. Buckley. Now you've yes. got like Dinesh D'Souza and Jordan Peterson. Like it's a real decline. That book helps you understand it. And again, you'll hear some great right wing arguments. Oh, and another book. Yes. <laughs> Uh, once again, we mentioned them already, so this would be a good bookend. Uh, uh, Nathan Robinson at Current Affairs is bizarrely prolific. and uh, Yeah, he book, is. Uh, he he makes me wonder what I'm doing with my life, honestly. Yeah, you know, well, a, lot of, <laughs> a lot of us, yeah, that's, I mean, look, I feel that too. A lot of us have full-time jobs. Yeah. Uh, and I guess, you know, putting out a magazine is definitely a full-time job. But if you're not working around an existing 30 or 40 hours a week, at least that's what I tell myself to feel better about yeah, how much too. less productive I am. But his <laughs> new book is um, – it's it's The Current Affairs Rules for Life. And it's oh, yes. I saw that. that. Yeah, it's I, more or less a direct rebuttal of uh, Peterson's book. So that might be a good one too for your audience to consider. Absolutely. All right. Well, this has been enormous fun. Thank you so much for coming on. Hey, my pleasure, man. Thanks a lot. We'll do it again. Yeah, let's do it again. Before we wrap up here, just a quick announcement. My Patreon is now live. You can go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long, and you can now pay me in more than compliments on Twitter, which don't get me wrong. I love, I love compliments on Twitter. I need those endorphin hits. But that aside, you can now pay me in other ways. So if you are financially able to, and I understand that not all of us are, but if you are financially able to, and if you 
you love my work, go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. And for just $1 a month or $5 a month, you will get the weekly House of Heretics podcast where Justin and I have uh, weekly unedited conversations about everything from kinky sex to bed bugs to socialism to theology to Buddhism. And we really say a lot of things that should be edited and should not are not decent for public consumption, but that's what you're paying the money for. Also, one final bit of news. Uh, my dear friend Matt Langston, the front man of the band 117, he is the owner of Rock Candy Recordings. He produces this show. He has a new album out. It is the B-Sides of Rad Science from 117. And I am going to close this episode with one of his latest songs. And we will see you next week. the war.